In 2010, via Workman Publishing, executive coach and author Michael Bungay-Stanier published Do More Great Work. My own Amazon purchase history shows me buying a copy for myself that spring, and then buying another to share with my wife in 2011, another for a friend in February 2017, don't remember which one, another for a different friend that same August, and then two more purchases for mentees in the fall of 2019. Now, as a sample size of one, if I'm any indicator, this is a book people love and share around. Well, Michael's book reads quick, fast, and fun. It makes you smarter as you go, and it's really a workbook. The author introduces us to exercises he calls maps. There are 15 of them in the book, and you're guided along to fill them out as you go. Together, they're designed to help you do more great work. Stop the busy work, the subtitle goes, and start the work that matters. Now, I believe this is a book that anyone can pick up at any point in life and through some introspection and a little elbow grease, chart their way forward. Maybe get back on the path you once were on. Maybe find a new path, eyes wide open, maybe a mix. If last week's look at positive intelligence gives you an operating system to be a better version of yourself, do more great work puts you on a path partly of your own design, a higher path than you were probably initially taking. So taken together, read one after the other in the same sequence that this month's podcasts bring you, I believe that positive intelligence and do more great work will give clear eyes and a full heart, and I say you can't lose. Get ready for high energy and, yes, high excitement about your potential new future that we may just help you find only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I sure did have a lot of fun with Shirzad Shamin last week, his book, Positive Intelligence. A return appearance for Shirzad on this podcast. He last first joined us in October of last year. And maybe it's something about executive coaches that's on my mind here in August of 2021. I'm not sure why exactly, but this week's author, Michael Bungay-Stanier, is also a world-class coach. In addition to being an author and a personality that I know you're going to enjoy with me this week. And before I welcome on Michael, I'd like to mention next week's author and what we're doing. It'll be a horse of a different color the third week in August. Charles King and his book, Gods of the Upper Air. Now, in Gods of the Upper Air, Charles will introduce you to some amazing rule breakers of the past century, and that would be the women and men who effectively started a new science at the time called anthropology, cultural anthropology, Margaret Mead, Franz Boas, etc. So I'm looking forward next week to a riveting discussion with Charles right along the lines of his book's subtitle, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century. So that's next week. And again, I doubt you'll be able to buy the book and read it before then, but some of you no doubt will. And the rest of us can be inspired and learn and maybe want to learn a lot more looking backward to understand our present day. So looking forward to that. But without any further ado, Michael Bungay-Stanier has written books that have sold about a million copies all told, including his book, The Coaching Habit. We won't be talking about that this week unless he wants to. We can. That's a self-published book that became the best-selling book on coaching this century. Michael founded a training and development company. I love the title, Box of Crayons. How could you not want to 
work with Box of Crayons that has taught coaching skills to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Michael adds, by the way, and I quote, I love that it's a human-centered place to work and that it practices what it preaches, end quote. But wait, there's more. He's been happily married for 30 years or so. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He created a book in partnership with Seth Godin, a previous author's and August guest for this podcast, August 2018, actually. But Michael and Seth raised $400,000 for Malaria No More through that effort. Michael's also been named number one thought leader in coaching and a coaching guru. That's with a capital C and a capital G, by the way. He's launched several podcasts and occasionally joins in on others. And I'm so glad to have you with us this week, Michael Bungay Stanier. David, thank you so much. This, I'm quite exhausted having had that introduction. I'm going to take a quick <laughs> lie down, but I really appreciate being here. Honestly, I know uh, I know your previous week's guests. I, I haven't heard of your next week's guests, but they sound amazing. So I'm glad to kind of be the filler in between these two things. <laughs> ah, yes. You are that marshmallow that we love in between the Oreo cookie. Wasn't That's a marshmallow it. something like that? Let me ask you a completely offbeat question first. Mm. I, I hadn't planned this, but not all of us use that middle name in our full name. It feels very 19th century to me. Yes. And yours, I didn't initially know how to pronounce, Michael. It's Bungay, though. I got that right, right? Yeah, you got it right. But here's the twist. It's actually not my middle name. It's actually my married name. So when I got ah. married, my wife and I combined our names together. So I was you know, Michael Stanier. I became Michael Bungay Stanier. But there's no hyphen in it. So it gets kind of tricky for people. There's like, so I keep going, it's like an invisible hyphen. And of course, it freaks people out a little bit trying to pronounce it, just as you were saying. <laughs> and in fact, I once got a letter addressed to Michael, actually Professor Michael Banging Spaniel, which I thought was <laughs> the most outstanding <laughs> wrong version of my name. So, you know, when people were going for my name, I'm like, if it's better than Banging Spaniel, you're already ahead of the game. But the choice to take your wife's name into your name, that's a thats a real intentional decision. Could you just share? Not everybody does that. What was your yeah. thinking at the time? Well, um, I would say it's twofold. First of all, my, my wife has grown up in, in the world of kind of academia, and it's kind of common in academia, particularly for women, to have a double-barreled name. So they're kind of like, I'm not trading my identity off for mm -hmm. my, my married partner's name. I'm going to keep my own uh pre-married name as part of who I am. And actually, a lot of my early work, particularly in university, was around feminism. And I was like, you know what, I'm really, I'm really engaged in the sense of what does it mean to have gender equality? What does it mean to think about the patriarchy? You know, where does the, where does, how does the shadow of the patriarchy fall? And it just felt like one of those small statements that says, look, I'm not asking the, the woman I'm marrying to give up her name to take my name we can combine our names and confuse people for the next 30 to 50 years. And I think we've successfully done that. Well, you just untangled my own personal confusion, and I love the story. So thank you for sharing that, Michael. Yeah, sure. Let's go to the book, Do More Great Work. Now, first mm. off, your title. I mean, many business books require you to read the subtitle to really figure out what's going on here, but not yours. Yeah. Do More Great Work. So obviously, I love the directness of it, but with map number one in your book, you're asking us, readers to make a pie chart of how we spend our time in three categories, the bad work we do, the good work we do, and the great work. Michael, would you coach us a bit on what these three categories mean? Sure. So I'll start off by just saying there's a saying out there, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So this is just a wrong, useful model to take a snapshot in terms of how you're showing up in your life. And 
work is really the whole the whole enchilada here. It's not just kind of your 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 business or your corporate responsibility. It's like how you're showing up in life. So everything you do falls into one of three different buckets: bad, good, and great work. Just as David's saying. So here we go: bad work. It is the mind-numbing, soul-sucking, life-crushing work that makes you want to pick up a pen and stab yourself in the eye. It's the work that makes you go, this is my one and precious life. What the hell am I doing here? How did I end up doing this? So it's different for all of us. But you know, if, if, if you're somebody who works in corporations, you definitely know what this is like. It's, you know, it's the bureaucracy. It's the, the two-hour meetings that you go to where you're like, well, that's two hours of my life. I'm never getting back again. You know, and I was running that meeting. You know, it's all of that sort of stuff where you're like, oh, my goodness, this is the this – is, this is, why, why, why has my life deteriorated into this? So bad work. And everybody listening will go, oh, I know exactly what that is for me. Good work, the fastest description I figured out for this, David, is good work is your job description. Hmm. Now, this is true whether you have a, an official job in a company, whether you're an entrepreneur and you're running your own thing, whether you're, you're not working directly for a profit or, or a nonprofit organization and you, you're a housekeeper or whatever. It's about how do you spend your day? So good work is productive, efficient, getting things done, what you're good at, what you've been trained to do. You don't screw it up too often. It is a key part of happiness and a key part of contribution. But the challenge with good work, David, is it is seductive. It is also overwhelming. There's always too much good work to get mm. done. There's always more stuff. You know, that everybody's going, <laughs> no, nobody's coming up to Friday afternoons and going, I'll just you know, play Tetris for a while to while away my time. <laughs> Everybody's like, I still haven't got to the bottom of my emails. I still have got that thing outstanding. You know, for most people, if even if they never sleep again, they'll never get quite to the end of their good work. But good work is essential part of the mix. It's like, you know, it's, it, it generates meaning. It makes you feel good. And it often gives you kind of those shorter term rewards around what your boss wants you to do and what your boss's boss wants you to do. And then that leaves us with great work. Mm. So great work is the work that has more impact and the work that has more meaning. And it's this entwined definition that I think is so powerful. It is the work externally that you focus on to say, this is the stuff that makes the difference. You know, if you know the Pareto principle, it's like the 20% that gives you the 80%. It's like of all the stuff you could be focusing on, which will really kind of, you know, move the needle, tip the domino, whatever you want to say. But it's not just about impact. It's actually about what lights you up. What do you care about? What is more meaningful for you? What speaks to your values and who you want to be in this world? What's the, what speaks to legacy? Now, we all have this mix of bad work, good work, and great work in our life. Very few people <laughs> have too much great work. I mean, honestly, David, over the years, I've probably stood in front of 100,000 people over the you know, in various stages through a screen on a stage and gone, hands up everybody who has too much great work right now, too much work that is meaningful and making a difference. <laughs> and I reckon maybe five or six people have stuck up their hands. <laughs> and I don't think they really understood the question. <laughs> you know, honestly, I think for all of us, we've got too much bad work for sure. We've got too much good work and we're hungry for a little bit more great work. Now, it's not trying to replace everything to do 100% great work because that would just make your head explode. But it's about going, what choices can I make to find the right balance between good work and great work for me, for my team, for my organization, for my family, all of that. And 
the surprising bit of that, because once we hear great work explained and bad work explained, I think we get those pretty intuitively. But you just said it's the good work that can overwhelm us mm. and take away a lot of the, the, the great work opportunity. Michael, your book subtitle, Stop the Busy Work, Start the Work <laughs> That Matters. Was there a right. time in your life where you just switched on and suddenly realized you needed to do this? Yeah. In fact, it's an ongoing discipline for me because, you know, I suffer from shiny object syndrome (laughs) and I'm constantly kind of going, oh, what's over here? What's over there? And I've, you know, I've worked in big companies and I've worked in small companies and I, you know, your life fills up with detritus. I remember, you know, 20 years ago, a friend of mine going, Michael, it's focus. <laughs> the secret is focus. But I'm like, but no, 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 I'm a dabbler. I want to do a whole kind of bunch of things in a kind of small way. And he's like, you can do that. That's fine. But if you're looking to make an impact, if you're really making a difference, if you're looking to amplify the best version of yourself, then it's about having the courage to make a choice, to say yes to something. And in saying yes, being able to say no to the other things that you need to say no to, to give your yes, some shape and some purpose and some impact. So, or a lot of the, I mean, the, you mentioned the uh, end malaria book that I did with Seth Godin, which I'm really proud of. It's like, you know, it's like 60 people. They wrote short articles. We partnered with Amazon and it meant that all the revenue from the book, not just the profit, but absolutely everything went to this uh, malaria no more uh, charity. Hmm. And it came about because I'd written this book, do more great work. And in it, it's like, it's really helpful to define a great work project. And I'm like, huh. I, I probably should be doing a great work project now <laughs> you know, if I'm not a total hypocrite. And, and the end malaria book was the, was the uh, distillation of that. You know, I sat in a coffee shop for a while and went, well, what are my strengths and what do I care about and what impact do I want to have in the world? And end malaria grew out of that. So that's a, that's a direct line of sight from writing the book. Eating our own dog food, which is awfully good <laughs> advice most of the time. And it, yes. I hope it doesn't taste like dog food. But no, the truth is that there's, especially as authors, and I've done this before, it's helpful to make sure that we still agree with what we wrote and indeed exemplify it and embody it, which is what yeah. the world kind of needs from us. Yeah, too often it's take my advice because I'm not using it. And I'm uh, like, actually, yep. <laughs> take That's my something. advice because I'm trying to follow it myself. <laughs> That's something we all need to guard against. Uh, in the book, Mike, I think for me, map number three, where I want to spend some time here, probably my personal favorite. So I want to go deeper on this one, encourage sure. all my fellow fools to do that right along with us. So it's entitled, What Are You Like at Your Best? Yeah. So let me start by asking, Michael, why is what am I like at my best an important question? Yeah, it is no small thing to say I'm up for more great work. And it calls on the very best of you to step forward into that space, not just to, to find it, because at your very best, you're finding stuff that is reflects your values, but to have the courage to say yes to it, to start it, and to have the courage to and the, and the resilience to continue it. Because when you do more great work, you're typically stepping out into the unknown, into the unexpected. You're, you're going to meet resistance of a whole bunch of people going, what, what are you doing? <laughs> go, back, go back into your safe box where I understand you. Don't, what, this is crazy talk. <laughs> so it's going to call on the very best of you to come forth. And it's really helpful to kind of get grounded in what that sense of who you are like mm. at your best so that you can find great work that's resonant to that and you can sustain yourself going through it. And I'm really delighted that you chose Map 3. I didn't know you were going to pick that because it's one of my favorites as well. I've got this little 
I'm holding up my my little this not that thing which is laminated and that I carry around with me and I have done for 15 years since this book has come out as a as a way of actually not just remembering who I am at my best which is part of it but the the secret of map 3 is called the this not that exercise it's also remembering what I'm like when I'm not quite at my best when I'm like 15% off my game because what that does is it helps me navigate back from being off my game, being back to what I can be at my very best. So I think that's part of the power of the exercise. And indeed, the exercise starts by asking the reader, our listeners right now, to, and I'll quote, remember a time when you were at your very best, a time when you felt you were being most authentic, most yourself, most natural, most in the zone, a peak moment, playing to your strengths, doing great work, end quote. So, okay, dear listeners, do you have one in mind? And then Michael makes us write down 20 words that evoke how we were at this time. And then then you do it again. You make us build out a bigger list of words, Michael. We're up to 30 words now. And then you have us narrow those down to Mm. just 10. Why? Yeah, because choice is really at the essence of great work. And I want to give you a tool that is helpful for you. And if you have like 30 pairs of words, it's like having 30 key KPIs. It's like, <laughs> I, I don't even know what to do with that. They're not, it's too much. Whereas, I mean, what I love about this exercise, Dave, is it takes like 20 minutes to do a first draft, but then another 20 iterations to polish it and get it really so it feels like a really helpful tool for you as you refine the language, refine the pairs, maybe evolve as you go through it. But yeah, it's like making choices. And you know, part of my early background is in the world of innovation and creativity. So I know a bit about running a brainstorm. And <laughs> I found out the other day that you know, I was in this uh, new product development agency. So I, you know, I played a very small role in helping to invent stuffed crust pizza, which became very clear to me that this is in no way my great work. So that was part of what moved me on from that job. <laughs> but I also helped Diageo invent a single malt whiskey, which I read on a, a whiskey review site just the other month is now considered possibly the worst single malt whiskey ever invented. <laughs> I was like, yeah, stuff crust pizza and the worst single malt whiskey ever invented. That's a, a proud boast. But this this brainstorming approach, which is like go get a lot and then trim and get clear on what really matters, just gives you it's 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 easier to it's it's easy to edit once you've got too much on the page. So it just helps you kind of make choices around that. Absolutely. And after amping up that language a little bit, you now have us, and you mentioned this, pair those words Mm. with ones that express when we are not at our best, not at our peak, maybe falling out of doing great work. So let me give an example. And people can't see us. You and I can see each other because we're using video, but I also have mine right up at my desk. So yours are laminated. I have a laminated copy. But yes, I'm amazed to think that you still, following your own, eating your own dog food, following your own exercise, still have your paired list of 10, as do I. I'm not going to share them all, but a couple examples so listeners know what we're talking about. So from my own list, one of mine, 10, one of them is showcasing, not burying my talents. Another one is dreaming big not focusing small. So you essentially have us create a personal set of almost branding statements that help us remind ourselves 
of the 10 ways we are at our best and specifically their opposites when we're not. I did this 11 years ago. When did you first do this, Michael? I did this. Well, I, I, I did it because as a branding exercise for a product. So that's actually the root of that. So I love that you're pointing to that. Um, I did this prior to writing the book and the book is 11 years old now. So I probably would have done my first one around 14 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so pairs for me are things like uh, loose, not tight. So that, that means a lot to me. That means that that resonates at a physical level. It resonates in terms of a, a, how I am act or interacting in a relationship. You know, that pair of words won't mean much to some people, but for me, I get an immediate physical hit around what that means. Um, provocative, not sycophantic. So it's like <laughs> sycophantic is, you know, it makes basically sucking up to people. Um, whereas I, 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 I want to stir people and, you know, this became, I remember once being in uh, Detroit, giving a speech um, for a whole bunch of car makers. And honestly, I walked into this room and it's for me, one of my toughest crowds. It was basically all alpha males, right? They're all six foot four. They're all steel gray hair, steel gray suits, white shirts, red ties, <laughs> hand crushing handshakes. <laughs> and I could feel myself shrinking because I'm like, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really an alpha male. I don't really, I don't really kind of understand that well that much. So I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm trying to, I want them to like me because they're all powerful auto executives. And I could just feel the, the, whatever magic I have draining away. And I'm like, oh, I'm feeling the need to be sycophantic. My job is to be provocative. And it would allow me to kind of have the courage to kind of go out and give my talk and run my thing the best way I can mm. and go, look, I'm trying, I don't, I'm trying to free myself a little bit from what the audience is expecting. And I'm trying to be the best version of me because that's why they hired me. So, you know, one of the ways into this, David, is for sure, thinking of a peak moment and then generating words. Another way into it is thinking of a off peak moment, like that speech at, in Detroit, where I'm like, oh, this is me not, I'm not failing but just being 15% below who I want to be. What do I learn from that? What are the words there? And how might I get moved from there into a, in a, a more full expression of who I am? And it is just a, a really great reminder that sometimes it's one thing to have an exemplar. And I think we all need those. And I think back to college literature courses. Mm. So at university, we're studying the great books a lot of the time right. and for good reasons. But what I always wanted, and I never did take this course, I wanted my professor to include a horrible book, a horrendously (laughs) bad piece of literature, because that also educates, because we get the contrasts that without which we kind of don't know what bad looks like. Right. Yeah, there there is a lot of wisdom for, I mean, this is emotional intelligence, which is being able to say, it's kind of being able to notice yourself and go, are you happy with how you're showing up right now? And um, sometimes you can kind of float outside yourself and go, wow, man, this is awesome. You're doing a great job. And sometimes you can look at yourself and go, wow, you're selling yourself short here. What does it take for you to get back to being the best version you can be in this moment? Because that unlocks all sorts of great things. The first part of the book, Michael, basically focused on knowing oneself, thinking through Mm -hmm. our peak experiences, our purpose, what we stand for. And that sets up the next part of the book where you uncover your great work. Now, my favorite map in that section is map number six, 
and it's entitled What's Broken. Let's talk about this one a little bit. Yeah. So the visual is great. It works pretty well even in audio format on this podcast, I think. But it involves concentric circles, yes. uh, starting with what's right in front of you and progressing outward. And the question is, what could be improved or changed? So, for example, yeah. the first concentric circle, and I'm sitting at my desk right now, is <laughs> around my desk. You encourage yeah. us to ask, you know, what would you or I like to change or fix just around mm. our desk? And by the way, when I first filled that out 11 years ago, I looked with some annoyance at my printer because it had this awkward cable. And I was conscious, you know, printers yeah, yeah. are going wireless. Why do I have an ugly wire coming out of that printer? Anyway, from okay. your desk, you take us outward concentrically to your office, your mm. workload, your team, your division, your organization. What's broken or could be fixed for any of our organizations, your neighborhood, country, and then world? Michael, for the fun of it, What's something that you think is broken about either your desk or office where you're working today or about our world? Well, I can tell you what's broken right now about my office, which is, you know, it's peak summer in Toronto and this little room, and it's a small room, it's like a hundred square foot, doesn't have air conditioning. So partly, <laughs> part of why I'm grateful around this being audio, not video, is if it was video, people would be watching sweat dripping down my forehead and kind of like you know, me fanning myself. So there's there's something around that. Um, and actually, I just went through this exercise just the other day, and I'm like, what needs to be true for me to be delighted about the space in which I'm working? Mm. And uh, you know, that's a question that I got from a guy called Roger Martin, who's a wonderful writer and thinker. You know, what needs to be true about a future state that you're aspiring to doesn't then make you go, is it a yes or a no to that future state? It just asks you what would have to happen for you to get there. And it starts Beautiful opening up all question. sorts of interesting possibilities. And then in terms of what what's broken about the world, <laughs> Well, we've just had the, um, I mean, yesterday the UN put out their, their latest report on climate change, just going, it, you know, this is it. We are, we are rubbing right up against it. And it is a very scary, I mean, kind of connected to me sweating here in my office, which is like an, an over hot summer. But really, you know, for the most part in Toronto, I'm kind of protected from climate change and, and climate change. Uh, disaster um there's lots of you know i have friends on pacific islands and those mm. pacific islands aren't going to be there and for for much longer unless something happens so that's that's pretty big and overwhelming mm. very well said and you know i'm thinking a little bit about you you being in canada you told me just before we started today that you are a citizen of three nations you're a citizen of australia your native land you're a, a, a citizen yes. of the uk and of course of Canada, where you work and have breathed and married into the country 20-some yes. years ago? Yep, 25 years ago. Wonderful. So I was just thinking, just in the here and now, the U.S. and Canada, we haven't been able to go across each other's borders much for the last year and a half, except no. that I think it just started opening so that we can visit Did. you. I think that's right. So we, we're, getting, we're getting Americans coming through our airports starting today, I think. So it's quite exciting that we're finally opening up. I think you have to be fully vaccinated, which is great. Um, and I think we're opening it up more broadly in about a month's time to other fully vaccinated people from around the world. So, you know, it's slowly maybe things are getting back together again. But, I, I mean, you've probably experienced this too, David, which is like travel ain't what it used to be. <laughs> well, and I'm curious, Mike, how much traveling do you do? I'm thinking about you as an executive coach, an entrepreneur, 
author, no. speaker. Is that a big part of your life? And what have you done over these last 18 months? Yeah, it, it was a big part of my life. Um, and uh, some of that travel I loved and some of that travel I went, who booked me on this flight? Oh, wait, I booked me on this flight. Ah, this isn't my great work. What am I doing saying yes to this? Um, but for the last 18 months, uh, it's, been a, it's been an interesting mix. So um, I'm in my 50s. My dad died a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I spent the last four months uh, in Australia uh, with my mum and dad as he kind of lived through his terminal illness. And last year, I spent another three months there. So in fact, in the last 12 months, wow. I've had seven months back in Australia, living in my childhood bedroom, which is <laughs> a whole other thing for a therapist and a couch at some stage. Um, so it's been a really interesting mix. Whereas in previous years, my life with my wife would have been, you know, I'm away for a bit, I'm back for a bit, I'm away for a bit, I'm back for a bit. The last 18 months is I'm either fully away or I am fully back. Mm. <laughs> and both of those new ways of living together needed adjustment. You know, we had to figure out what's it like when Michael doesn't go away <laughs> and, <laughs> and we're not given a break from each other and how do we kind of reset around that? And then what's it like when Michael is away for months and how do you sustain a relationship and intimacy and love and connection when, I mean, four months is a very long time to be away from a spouse, somebody who you love. And very well said. I'm so sorry to hear that about your father. I'm so glad that you had that time with him and made that time with him. That it wasn't was that easy amazing. to do, probably. So, uh, in fact, last last month, I did the second half of the mailbag two weeks ago, just dedicated to parents and thinking about the importance yeah. of what they mean to us and, and how we should treasure them. So, um, you're you. a living example of that. And thank you for that. I'm curious, Do you before we move back to the book, do you have a tip for any of us uh, who might have a spouse or partner going, the equivalent of Michael's around full time now, and that means things need to change. Have you learned something you can share, Coach? Well, I am a really big fan of something that's called some. Originally, it was called social contracting. I start to think of it as our operating manual, which is having a conversation about how we work together, not what we're working on. Mm. And most of the time, when you're pulled together, and this is true with your spouse, or it's true with people you work with at work and the like. The seduction is to talk about the thing, the project that needs to be sorted or the, or the you know, the, that external third thing that you're both looking at going, how are we going to deal with this? And it can be really powerful to just have a conversation about how are we working together? What do you love about what I do? What drives you nuts about who I am and what I do? Because trust me, you're, there's something, there will be something there. Um, and then have them answer the same question, you know, you answer the same question that they're answering. Mm. And it just gives you a greater sense of, I want to be the best version of myself for you, which is true in theory. <laughs> in practice, I, I forget that all the time. <laughs> but let me give you some clues as to what helps me be the best version of myself for you. And if you could do the same for me so that I can wind you up less and I can be as the type of person that you're hoping for, or at least I can understand what you're hoping for. That conversation at that level about how do we be with each other rather than what are we working on together can make a difference. And it's awkward as, as anything, but you know, it can be really powerful. And as an example of this, David, so my dad's illness involved him coming home and living at home for the last two months, which was a great bonus for us because we 
Mm. Didn't think he would make that. But he was in a hospital bed um, in a home and he had attached to oxygen. And suddenly a man who had been a very equal contributor to a household and did you know most of the cooking and this, that, and the other was now being looked after by my mum as the as his caregiver. And this is a really great couple who'd been together for 55 years and they were they were just an outstanding role model mm. in terms of a shared partnership, really tight, really loving, very lucky to have that as a role model and that as parents. And and they were just getting irritated with each other. Dad's irritated because he can't do what he used to do and the service isn't what he was expecting. <laughs> Mum's irritated because there's a standard of service expected here, which just wasn't that, <laughs> which she wasn't signed up for. And so I sat down and facilitated a conversation around these kind of topics, which is wow. like, how do you want to now live with each other? Because things have shifted. In, in how your relation works. And you've got to tell you, this is so awkward. <laughs> it's like, don't make me, I don't want anybody to think that I was just like, oh, this will be fun. I was like, oh my God, this is like the worst thing ever. But I think it's going to, I don't, I don't want my mum's last two months memory of her relationship with my dad to be damaged because of the recency effect. It means it'll stain her whole memory of the relationship. I want this relationship to have its best chance to be as strong as possible, even in this really impossible time. And mum's like, do I have to be here for this? And I'm like, I think you have to be here for this. <laughs> and dad's like, I think this will be good, perhaps. And so we had a conversation around it and it was pretty good. It, it, we didn't answer all the questions, but we answered, you know, we, we, and we just talked about the relationship. And in talking about it, it meant that we could keep talking about it and they could keep reorienting around each other and, and they could give each other permission to do things and they could make requests to not do things. And honestly, I feel very proud of that moment because when you're a coach or you teach coaching, you don't, you, you know, it's, it's much easier to teach the stuff than actually deliver it yourself. But to actually have made that conversation take place felt like a really great contribution to my parents' happiness. What a loving son and what a platform you gave them, even if it was awkward and not easy to do, to be <laughs> so able to awkward. talk with each other afterward and reflect yeah. back on that. And I, I, I do love the meta uh, of conversation. In fact, we went off book for this part, and it's one of my favorite things that we talked about. I'm so yeah, grateful yeah. that you shared that. But it's funny. I, I was having a conversation with a, a mentee who's a rising college sophomore this morning, and he asked me, you know, his first question was, how did I start my business? And I asked him back, why are you asking that question? And that was kind of awkward. And the reason wasn't because I was trying to create an awkward moment. It's because it really matters why people ask the questions that yeah, they ask. Yeah. They're, they're, in a sense, not telling you, but they're willing to. Uh, yeah where it comes from. And that should change your answer. And so that's why yeah. I awkwardly in interrupted him and asked him why he asked me that question. Yeah. Well, so what do you want to really know? I, I'd be really curious to know that because you can look that up. I mean, there's a thousand articles written about why you started the company. You can look that up. It's like, what's, what's, what are you really looking to find out here? What's the real question behind your question? Exactly. That's, that would have taken the conversation into a much richer place. Yes. And what else? I heard you deliver the <laughs> AWE in a TEDx talk recently. That's We're not going to talk about the advice monster this oh, time, right. but anybody can go and listen to Michael talk about um, uh, shackling one's own advice monster <laughs> in service yeah, of better uh, conversation. My, my favorite fun. comment on that TEDx talk is, I tried to watch this, but his trousers were too tight. <laughs> so... <laughs>
was like, okay. So if you're not interested in the advice monster, but you're interested in really tight trousers, then that is the TEDx talk for you. Well, you should have shown them your laminated piece that says loose, exactly. not tight. <laughs> exactly. Ah, that's perfect. Nice connection. All right. Back to the book. So yeah. we were just talking about map number six, and it's mm. about what's broken. And, and you, yeah. you answered some good questions there. All I wanted to reflect briefly on is that it's one of my favorite questions to ask in business. Yeah. Uh, it's really the way businesses get started. You have somebody who has a lover's quarrel with his or her industry and yeah. you know they had a bad experience. They didn't return that video, that DVD on time, and they paid $23, so they decided to create a streaming service exactly. where you wouldn't have to do that anymore, and the list goes on. I think of Robert Frost. It was his poem, Lover's mm. Quarrel with the World. It's on his gravestone, I Had a Lover's Quarrel with the World. So what's broken oh, when, asked, when asked right and when asked out of a good place, from a good place, right. uh, with a clean conscience, clean heart, can really lead to some of the great innovations of our time. Absolutely. I hadn't heard that phrase, the lovers quarrel, but it is perfect, David, because it is, you know, when I talk about coaching people, I'll often talk about fierce love, meaning I, the relationship I want if I'm coaching you or mentoring you is love. I want you to feel that I am, I'm right. I'm with you and I've, I've mm. got your back and I just want the best for you. A bit of fierceness means I'm just not going to put up with any BS around it either. I'm going to, I'm going to be blunt. I'm going to be provocative. I'm going to push as well as hug. And there's something in that, which is similar to a lover's quarrel, which is like, I am so committed to this but this will not stand. Mm. <laughs> Things need to be different here because this matters too much for me to tolerate this mess. Well, you have a wonderful sidebar in the book as you begin to encourage us as readers to pick a project to go after some new great work. The section, the sidebar is about how to say no. How to say no when you can't say no because a lot of us, me included, feel a lot of pressure externally or sometimes yeah. internally yeah. to say yes, probably too often. So Michael Bungay, stand your coach to millions. <laughs> yes. Can you give us the short course right now on how to say no? Sure. I think the, the starting point is to say you got permission to say no, because there's lots of people I think who go, I'm not even allowed to say no. Why are we even having this conversation? And I'm like, you do actually have permission to say no. Um, and then I think there are different tactics that you can use depending on what's going on. Sometimes it's just helpful to have a script. <laughs> so like I have, um, I have a little text expander thing that I type in, which is like semicolon fully. I type that in and it just types out a three or four sentence message that says, <laughs> I, 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 I really appreciate the invitation. It's kind of you to think of me. Unfortunately, I'm fully committed to other projects. So I'll respectfully have to say no. And it means I don't have to think about crafting a no, a no thing because every time it's like, oh, this is awkward. And I kind of want to say yes, because I'm a, trying to be a nice guy. And this person sounds like they're a good person. So I think just having a script can, can be part of it. Another way to doing it is to say not now, which is like, uh, you know what, this is a great invitation. I can't do it now. Would you be willing to ask me again in a week or a month or in three months? And part of what I love about that is um, people will typically forget, <laughs> not always. And you know, when, I, when I'm invited onto a podcast or something and I'm like, I can't do it now, do you want to ask me back in three months? When that person comes back in three months, I'm like, good on you. You have a system that works and you're going to actually ask me. So just for that alone, I'm going to, I'm going to do the thing you want me to do. Um, and then um, 
because persistence, I mean, this is the other side of it, which is like a, a persistence in making the request. Um, often we assume that silence equals no. And silence often means I just haven't got around to answering it and I've lost your email. So, you know, I always, I always knock three times before I, I tend to walk away. And then I think the final one is to go um, help, help me understand what I need to say no to so that I can say yes to your request. So it's like, David is like, you know, this is particularly if you've got a working relationship and, you know, David's working for a boss like me, who, who is a classic visionary boss in kind of a Les McEwen style. Cause I know you and I both love Les, Les McEwen's work and like I'm a visionary and, and visionaries are full of good ideas and are untethered from reality in terms of how long it takes and what people can do. And I know any of those, kind, which is really helpful and also a nightmare to work with at times. <laughs> so I've got all of that. So I'm like, I'd say to Ainsley who works in my team, I'm like, Ainsley, great. I went for a walk and I've got three really good ideas. So <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And now Ainsley goes, well, she has a couple of things. She goes, tell me where the sense of urgency is coming from. And I'm like, Hmm. Oh yeah, no, actually there is no sense of urgency. <laughs> and then she goes, okay, but if you want me to take this on, what should I, what should I stop doing? And I'm like, don't stop doing anything. No, no, everything you're doing right now is critical and vital. She's like, so and I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'll come back to you if this is still a good idea in a month or two months or three months. And Brilliant. so that force of kind of help people see that there's a, a there's opportunity cost to saying yes. And making clear the opportunity cost means that people are making more thoughtful choices. Mm. In the book, you you have a few questions that you encourage us to ask back. And these are great. There are three. I'm just going to share them right now because I need to be reminded of this myself. <laughs> so the first thing you say is, may I ask why you're asking me? That's a, that's a <laughs> that's great, great one. Yeah, Number two sometimes is, they're asking you because you showed up and you have a pulse. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're like, you're the first person I thought of. And, yeah. And then the second question you have us is, have us ask is, have you asked anyone else? And the third question is, have you considered asking X? He's got some experience <laughs> with this. But as you said earlier, I love that the person often will respond to the questions back from you this way. Yeah. Good questions. Uh, let me let me get back to you when I when I've got some answers. And as you point out, often they never do because they found somebody else who would say yes faster or yes just as easily. And David, there's something deeper behind this, which is about power and how power works in relationships and within organizations. And, you know, it, this is a, a maybe a bit of a tenuous link, but for the same reason I, I changed my surname, which is around understanding the power of language and the power of names mm -hmm. and the power of having a shared surname. There's something about if the, you're listening to this, your ability to be a negotiator and a co-creator in these conversations rather than an order taker is you claiming power. And that's hard and necessary mm. because if we're trying to create organizations which are more human-centered, and if we're trying to create organizations where the very best of people is allowed to flourish and come forth, they, people need agency and autonomy and self-sufficiency. And this ability to say no is one of the key questions that is at the heart of that. And this isn't just about serving you. It's about role modeling this for other people in your organization. And your organization benefits from you being the best version of yourself, even if it's irritating for your boss, who's like, hmm. I just wish I just wish they'd take the order. <laughs> 
Mm. So it's a it's a it's a call for a bigger game here. That is a wonderful meta point. So let's proceed forward. Then we've said no enough times. We've yes. now enabled ourselves to say yes. And I want to mm. skip ahead past a few wonderful maps of great importance, like <laughs> right. comprehensively thinking about what is possible mm. or thinking backward from the future to know your right yes. ending. But but you close up that section talking about courage. The courage. Mm to make stuff happen. Now, one of my favorite Seth Godin lines, and I'm paraphrasing it, is basically the world doesn't need another great idea. The world doesn't necessarily need your great idea. The world needs people who can actually do the mm. idea, enact the great work. So we're all buried by ideas. This, yeah. thought, this thought goes, and we need heroes who actually turn ideas and plans into action. So, Michael, your emphasis on courage yeah. is in Map 11, where you encourage us in Map 11 to take our courage with Spinal Tap yeah. up to 11. <laughs> exactly. It goes to 11. So I take it you agree with Seth. I do agree with Seth. I mean, I agree with most of the things that Seth goes on about because um, <laughs> he, you know, he's a brilliant guy. Um, yeah, you know, it's one thing to know what your great work is. It is another thing to... To, to cross a threshold and start on this journey because you're not just typing in the destination of your great work into your Google map and it's giving you a straightforward, it's 12 minutes to get here, 14 minutes if you detour past this coffee shop. You're more, it's more like you're you're standing on a on a mountain and there's a mist-covered valley in front of you and there's a peak on the other side that may or may not be your actual target. You're not quite sure yet. And you're trying to figure out your way to get there. And you just don't walk in a straight line and in a, in a steady pace. You're feeling your way forward. You're you're going to get, have some dead ends and cul-de-sacs that you go down. You're gonna you're gonna take some guesses that are wrong. You're gonna take some guesses that are right, but not in the way that you expected. Hmm. So this kind of connects back to one of your very first questions, which is like, well, why do we do this exercise about who am I at my best? It's because when you're at your best, you're more likely to be able to tap into the courage that it takes to move forward the courage that it takes to ask for help, the courage it takes you to stop and go, ah, that, <laughs> that, that was a disaster. That didn't work at all. How do I regather myself and rethink about this and, and push forward on around this? Hmm. It, it, all of this movement and this progress and action, which is when your great work manifests and becomes something um, if, and possibly doesn't become something, might fail. It's like the courage to try something that you would be willing to fail at. I mean, one of the poems that I'm loving at the moment is by a, a German poet, Rilke, and the poem is called The Man Watching. And the, the final lines of it are, to be, to be deeply defeated by ever greater things as, mm. a, as a call forth, to be deeply defeated by ever greater things. And I'm like, oh, I love that. And that is in part what's at, at heart of great work, which is a willingness to be defeated by ever greater things. Because when you do great work. You don't guarantee a win. <laughs> you guarantee doing work that matters and doing work that lights you up and possibly having an impact. Um, and that's why you need courage. And I love that quote too. And one of my big themes and anybody who's listened to Rule Breaker Investing for any meaningful portion of time will know how often we lose. When we pick stocks, we're going to be right maybe half the time. Right. Uh, the key is to be really right a few times, but boy, are venture capitalists wrong most of the time? And are all of us humans muddling through from one day to the next, losing constantly? But I view it as losing to win. And yeah. I, I really love that Rilke 
uh, quote. I need to need to read that poem. Map 15 provides a wonderful conclusion to the book, in part because you address the problem of people like me. I think you were also self-identifying this way, who may oh, be amazing. <laughs> amazing. A lot of the reason I've laughed so much through this hour is because I can relate to so much. We have a good sense of humor, too. But I've, I'm laughing at myself a lot of the time based yes. on what you're saying. And I'm going to do it here again, too, because... I'm pretty amazing at getting things going, but then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, squirrel. Exactly. We find ourselves distracted, straying, not following through. And the map you provide, map 15 to close the book, has a bunch of reasons why that might be happening, a bunch of thoughtful ones. And and after you, we as readers self-diagnose which ones mm. pertain to us, the book then links from that issue directly to one of the other maps or sections right. earlier in the book to get you back on the path. And I think that's brilliant. Thank you. I mean, there is that great saying that you've probably heard this joke. There are two types of people in the world, the people who start things. <laughs> I do know that one. Exactly. It still makes me laugh. But it's, but it's, um, it, the, this is that kind of connects to the courage around, which is it is impossible not to stumble when you're doing great work. It just is impossible. And, um, and I'm not really kind of saying, so keep grinding and be relentless and never give up and flog yourself because that's actually a bit of a miserable journey as well. Agreed. I am saying this, that there's a place to kindness. There's a place for sadness when you fail. And if this great work matters enough, then it's like, how do you get back, back again? And there are different strategies depending on why you've struggled. You know, is it failed? Have you just lost momentum? Have you got you kind of lost your mojo around it? You've the 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 moment has has changed. There's all sorts of reasons why the great work may have stopped. I just think the world needs more people who are like, I'm going to be brave enough to actually try and do work that is great work. So you know, you know, for our sake as much as for your sake, please please get up again and begin the journey again. Well said. Shirzad Shamin still ringing in our ears from last week talking about how failure is, it's up to you and to me, but if we determine ahead of time to make it a gift yeah. and an opportunity, his phrase, uh, you really can. And so you can fail in some smaller, earlier context, learn from that, and all of a sudden be up on the big stage, and now you're ready. The, I'll, I'll give you my one of the tools that my team and I use for failure because you know we, we we meet it as often as anybody else, and this comes from uh, Roz and Ben Zander's book, The Art of Possibility, and um, it is this: when when <laughs> something's gone off the rails, you throw your hands in the air and you go, "How fascinating!" Now Ben Zander is British, so when he says says that, it sounds even better. <laughs> um, but the how fascinating stands, I love because it does a few things. First of all, it physically shifts you, so physically shifting actually helps because it just kind of gets you up and gets you moving, gets you out of your literally out of a slump. But how fascinating puts you into a place of curiosity and a place of this too will pass and a place of what can I learn from here rather than from uh, we're doomed and this is it and what was the point. So <laughs> when Ainsley and I are working together, who I work with most in this new business I've got, how fascinating is a recurrent theme? Well, thank you for a wonderful book, which I recommend to all humans and indeed have gifted to a number of humans connected to me, including my wife, Margaret, who went through the exercises with me to our mutual benefit. If you have a few more minutes, Michael, I want to open things up, just ask you some stuff that's not about the book. You sure. game? Yeah, All for right, sure. Great. So you are a coach by profession. You've started a business that coaches. 
I gather that you've started a number of businesses, mm-hmm. but specifically thinking about coaching as a as a profession. Yep. Did you emerge from your Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford saying, <laughs> I'm going to be a coach? Or how did you get there? And what do you make of it? When I was at university in Australia, actually, when, before I worked at university, I was a, a I found myself sitting with my friends, listening to my teenage angst stories a lot <laughs> and going, you know what, I'm pretty good at listening, but I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if this is helping or hindering. And when I first went to university, I, I did uh, telephone crisis counseling. So it was my first training in what does it mean to listen and listen for more that's being said, being present. And uh, I moved to England to be a Rhodes Scholar and uh, got my first job and started What did you study, by the way? What did you study there? I did a master's degree in modern literature. So I was writing on James Joyce and a British writer called Angela Carter. Good on you. Yeah, I I loved it. Um, And it stopped me being a lawyer as well, which was the real bonus, which was (laughs) I did a law degree in Australia, finished law school being sued by one of my law lecturers for defamation. So I was saved from a a miserable experience on that. And um, I, I noticed coaching arising basically from California. And I was like, oh, Californians, typical. Um, Because I was living in London at the time, so we're all cynical and skeptical. And um, (laughs) But it felt like there was something there. And, you know, there's that saying, David, inspiration is when your past suddenly starts making sense. And I started going, you know what, there's stuff that I've done in the past that makes it feel like coaching could be a thing for me. So I started just calling myself a coach in my relationships with clients and consulting clients I was working with. When I moved to Toronto in 2001, I did some training as a coach and then actually built a coaching practice and then dismantled it. So I do very little coaching now Okay. because it wasn't my great work. And I was really surprised by that because I was so sure it would be. <laughs> but it turns out that I'm better as a teacher and I want to democratize the idea of coaching. I want to unweird coaching so that mm. everybody goes, I can be more coach-like with the people in my life because it means I'm going to stay curious a little bit longer, rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly. And that feels like a, a bigger calling for me than the, the coaching that I do with people, which I do, you know, I do ad hoc with people, but I don't have a, a, a group of coaching clients anymore because to my surprise, that turned out to be not my great work. Well, uh, you've coached a lot of people listening to you, you this week, and we thank you for that free coaching, uh, which is really appreciated. Michael, tell me a little bit then about how you spend your time today. Do you Are you running a business? It sounds like, Ainsley, you have some new yeah. gig, new side hustle going on. Yeah, so um, Box of Crayons, uh, I, I founded about 20 years ago, and it's a B2B corporate training uh, company. So, you know, we train with Fortune 500 companies typically, so Microsoft and Salesforce and Gucci and TELUS in Canada, helping organizations shift from curiosity, advice-driven to curiosity-led, so practical coaching skills for managers and leaders and individual contributors. And so we train tens of thousands of people every year in these big companies. Two years ago, I stepped away from being CEO of that which is it's like another hour's worth of podcast conversation about <laughs> what does it mean to found something. I can something. relate. I can yeah. relate. Because, you know, as a founder, it's most founder transitions fail because founders are a nightmare and prima donnas and they've got so much of themselves tied up in the company that they started that it's actually quite difficult to manage the transition. But fingers crossed, two years into this, the new CEO of Box of Crayons, which is not new anymore, Shannon, She's 
brilliant. <laughs> oh, David, she's so good. I'm so and, happy and, for you. And the great thing was I hired her from behind the bar of my local pizzeria um, <laughs> as her first job. And like four years later, she's running the company. So it turned out to be possibly the best move I wow. did. So the, the new gig is MBS.works um, and it's more B2C and it's about helping people be a force for change. So it's about giving them kind of it's coming back to my do more great work roots, which is like, how do you give people the courage and the focus and the community to do work that makes a difference in the world? One or two more questions for you, Michael. One of them has to be, are you working on a new book? I am working on a new book. In fact, I just got an email today saying that it's going into typesetting, which is, it means that I've got no more fiddling around to do with it, which is so You've exciting. done your job then. Done You're done. Job. Exactly. So it's called um, How to Begin, Start Something That Matters. So it's in some ways the evolution of Do More Great Work. Um, it's about what does it mean to set a worthy goal, something that is thrilling, important, and daunting. And just like Do More Great Work, it's a really practical book, taking people through exercises, helping people get even clearer about where should I where should I put my time and my focus and my energy, and what does it take to be courageous enough to step into doing that? Hmm. Was it natural for you to write books that involve a lot of extra effort on your reader by doing exercises? These are very interactive. These are different from most books. I enjoy it a lot, but yeah. did that come to you naturally? Yeah, you know, in some ways, the the best description of what I am is as a facilitator. It's I'm trying to move people, and I'm uh, I'm good at translating concepts and ideas into ways that feel simple and practical and doable for people. And it's not enough for me to just have people go, "That sounds interesting." I'm like, I want I want it to be different as a result of this. Um, so I'm constantly trying to ask myself, you know, what does it take for people to shift their behavior and, you know, as best you can do it through a book. That's what I try and write to. It's like, here's how you work yourself through this. You can do this by yourself if you need to. Mm. What are you reading now or what inspires you, Michael? I read a lot. So my wife has a PhD in literature and a master's degree as a librarian. <laughs> so she's constantly feeding me books and I have a master's degree in literature as well. So we, we're both huge <laughs> readers and we read, I particularly read very broadly. I read fiction and nonfiction. I read science. I read business. I read literature. I read young adult. Honestly, the thing that I've just finished reading and I'm not going to remember the name of it, um, but it's written by an Englishman. He was the children's poet laureate in the UK and it describes his experience of getting COVID and, and being so close to death. And, and what, first of all, an insight as to just how many people looked after him to, to end his 60 days in the ICU in a hospital in England. And then what it took for him to recover. He lost sight in his eye. He lost sight, uh, hearing. He lost physically a, a lot. And what does it take to kind of recover from that? And it was a very human, beautifully written experience of this COVID thing is 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 terrible and and life altering, and also just a celebration of the people who are working so hard to get us through it. You've actually read the book, Michael. I'm just Googling it furiously as you speak, but I think you're talking about a book that I had not previously heard of, and it sounds amazing. It's entitled Many Different Kinds of Love, A Story That's of it. Life, Death, and the NHS by Michael Rosen. 
That's it. Perfect. It's it's a it's a fast read. I read it in a single burst because um, it's it's a prose poet, but it's it's just this is what it means to struggle with COVID at its worst and face death. Mm. Well, as somebody who himself was an English major, English literature, uh, who started a, a business with his brother, who also was an English literature <laughs> okay. major, and in my case, married a woman who was an English literature master's, <laughs> I think we can all agree that these degrees can lead to good exactly, things. Exactly, exactly. Up with the humanities, yes? Exactly. What, are you, what are you reading that's got your attention at the moment? I am reading, and I'm reading it aloud. Uh, which is what I love to do because my wife, Margaret, cooks and loves to be read too. I don't cook, and I love to showcase and not bury oh, my talents. So I'm reading that. The Count of Monte Cristo, which is her favorite <sighs> novel. I have previously never read it to my shame, and she had not read it in 30 years. So we're enjoying all 1,000 pages plus together that of The Count so, of Monte Cristo. So great. I'm listening to an audio version of Don Quixote at the same time, which is a similarly long rambling classic so it's fantastic <laughs> well this is a perfect way to end this episode of authors in august talking not just about your book michael although it's a great book do more great work and i'm looking forward to the birth of a new book in 2022 from you but also here we are just talking about books you've been very gracious with your time very open with us and uh one rule breaker to another i say sir fool on thank you well dear listener i hope you had at least half as much fun as I just did. As I mentioned, I found myself laughing throughout because Michael has a very good sense of humor and I felt guilty as charged at a number of different points, which I guess makes me laugh. Well, speaking of next week, we're going to get a little bit more serious, but very thinky. Charles King wrote a book called Gods of the Upper Air, where he introduces us to what I like to think of as real rule breakers, those who really founded modern anthropology in the 20th century. This is a little bit of a step away from what you might expect from rule breaker investing. Now, we've done that before for good books with other authors. One third of this podcast is about life, not just business or investing. But I think you'll be fascinated by his discussion, especially of race, especially in light of discussion of race in our society here in the United States and worldwide over the last year or two, anthropologists have a really interesting viewpoint, not just about race, but sex, gender, and coming to us from the 20th century, Charles King, an historian and a very fine writer. So looking forward to sharing him with you next week. In the meantime, have a foolish capital F week. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.